Father God, we come before you, having read these challenging words in your word. Uh, We acknowledge the many different situations in which we find ourselves, the life circumstances we come from, that we are in at the moment. We may be single, we may be married, we may be divorced, we may be widowed, we may be conscious of ways in which we have fallen short in these areas. We may be conscious of pain from ways in which we have been sinned against. We may feel weak as we approach your word. We pray, therefore, as we've sung, for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, open our hearts, to hear and receive what you're saying here, and to see the hope that there is in Jesus, in the gospel, in the life of the kingdom, in following in his way. We pray that you would uh, drive us to Jesus this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, marriage is a wonderful institution, said Groucho Marx, but who wants to live in an institution? There is no doubt that uh, marriage in our culture today is not in a great place. Uh, Of the marriages that take place today, it is now expected that 39% will end in divorce. Uh, The divorce rate actually has been going down since uh, the sort of mid-90s, but that is mainly due to fewer people getting married in the first place. Um, And also uh, the cost, the rising cost of um, divorce in difficult financial times. Uh, And even this week, in fact, the government launched a new uh, online divorce where you can get divorced amicably by paying £550 uh, with no court appearances necessary. Um, And that's not to prejudge any individual reasons that a marriage might have ended, but it is to recognise the reality about where our culture is at with marriage. Of course, when we speak about marriage today, there's no longer an assumption in the wider world that it is between a man and a woman. Actually, within the Church of England, as as we are, the the, the law of the land is still that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, and uh, same-sex weddings in churches are still against the law but for how much longer is unclear. And there is no doubt that our children will grow up with a different view of what marriage is about and what it stands for compared to previous generations. Then there is the unfaithfulness that often breaks marriages and relationships. Do you remember a few years ago the Ashley Madison website Uh, which is a website for uh, sort of uh, people who want to go and have an affair. Literally, you just sign up, it's sort of dating, but with that particular aim in mind. Their tagline um, is, life is short, have an affair. And uh, one day in 2015, uh, it all went wrong for Ashley Madison, or more specifically for the 36 million users worldwide of that website. Uh, And they woke up to discover their names and email addresses and other data about how they'd used the site had all been dumped online. 
and uh, this led to people being blackmailed. It uh, led to relationships and marriages and careers ending. It tragically even led to uh, some suicides. But actually the tragedy of the whole affair, if that's the right word, went deeper than that. People who investigated the data uh, that was published initially reported that it was just 1% of the users who were actually female and actively using their accounts. 1%. The rest were men. That's what they thought initially. Or certainly the number of men using the site appeared to vastly outnumber the women. So there were lots of reports of that. Actually, later that view was modified a bit as they analysed the data a bit more. And they worked out that actually perhaps what was going on in the data was it pointed to a huge number of female bots. In other words, fake profiles uh, who were programmed to talk to men online and sort of keep their interest going and keep them using the site, keep them paying for the site. But the number of people actually going on to have real affairs with real people was much lower than was thought. Uh, but what that amounted to, of course, was that many were clearly guilty of unfaithfulness but had never managed to follow through on their desires. Uh, the other way the internet makes a massive difference in this area is, of course, in the area of pornography, providing ridiculously easy access to images that previous generations would have just been too embarrassed to go, work, go into a newsagent to buy the appropriate magazine. I think it's fair to say our culture is now waking up to the destructive effects of pornography on individuals and on relationships. And there's a kind of clash in the culture, isn't there, between kind of sexual liberalism on the one hand, you know, do what you like as long as it's consensual, and then on the other hand, kind of feminism with the Me Too movement and the backlash against the objectification, especially of women, uh, though of course pornography is not just an issue for men. So in the midst of all that, where do Christians stand? Well, many people would say, well, actually, it's the fault of religion that we've got ourselves into this mess in the first place. You know, with all these restrictive rules and guilt, that's the problem here. Loosen up, you Christians, people would say. Well, is there a better story we can tell? In the Sermon on the Mount, these chapters 5 to 7 in Matthew's Gospel that we're looking at this term, we're seeing Jesus presenting a mouth-watering manifesto for the kingdom of God. The standards we've seen are high. They're impossibly high, aren't they? But the way in is not by measuring up to those impossible standards before we can get in, but instead to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who humble themselves before God, who realise their unworthiness to be in this perfect mouth-watering kingdom. Those are the kind of people who belong in the kingdom of God. And this picture that Jesus is painting is, is meant to be mouth-watering. It's designed to make us go, wow, I really want to be part of this. I want to be in a kingdom where the, the humble are blessed and the meek are celebrated. A, a, a place of peace, not war. Of love, not conflict of joyful, other-person-centred service, not looking after number one. But perhaps at first glance, these verses that we've just heard read don't sound quite like that. They sound like the same old broken record of restrictions and guilt. You know, is this sexual ethic, as you might call it, really 
what we need to hear today and what our world needs to hear. We need to understand that these verses are not sort of standalone pronouncements about adultery and lust and divorce. They are one thread of a much larger garment, the garment of the whole Bible's teaching about relationships. And so while it's sort of tempting to ignore this thread, to, to pull it out, to throw it away, actually the problem with that is that pulling on a thread in a garment pretty quickly unravels the whole thing, doesn't it? You try and pull it out. And in the second reading, Jesus repeated some of the teaching from these verses um, in the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew 19, he puts it into the wider context of the Bible's teaching about both marriage and singleness. And so actually, as we look at these verses, we're going to do the same thing. Consider the, the wider Bible context for this teaching that we see here in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look on the lilac sheets, you can see, first of all, marriage and singleness are intended for human flourishing. So when it comes to marriage, most definitions and descriptions of marriage focus on the couple. It's all about personal fulfilment and happiness, two people who want to live happily ever after. Actually, the Bible puts marriage in a rather different framework. The framework that Jesus refers to in, in Matthew chapter 19, if we turn to it for a moment now, which is over on page uh, 986, 986. What is the framework that Jesus refers to in Matthew 19? It's, it's creation. It's sometimes said that Jesus has very little to say about marriage and human relationships. It's the kind of thing you hear people say, isn't it? Actually, that simply isn't true. If you look at verses 4 and 5, uh, he affirms what the book of Genesis taught about the origins of marriage as the union of a man and a woman. And a union that God defines and ultimately brings about. Uh, it's not just a human thing, in other words. It's not just a piece of paper. It's part of God's original plan in creation. Before the first sin, when everything was perfect, and so it was intended, even as it was put together by God in the beginning, it was intended to be lifelong. And the rest of the Bible uses marriage as a massive visual aid. It becomes a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. So when Israel goes after other gods, God calls it spiritual adultery. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, marriage points away from itself to God's love for us, just as Christ loved the church. And in the book of Revelation, as we heard in the opening verse at the beginning of the service, the Bible ends as it began with a marriage, with the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So that's a very condensed overview of marriage in the Bible. But here's the point. You can't reduce marriage to just being about two people and how they feel about each other. It's designed to be so much more than that. It's designed to be a model of God's love for his people. Which is why we're not free to, to change what that marriage looks like. So, so look how Jesus outlines the basis um, for marriage there in verses 4 and 5. 
In marriage, the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And then the, the, the words that are picked up in a Church of England marriage service, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. It's intended to be lifelong because God's love for his people wasn't a temporary contract. It wasn't a kind of 10-year arrangement to see how things go. It was about unconditional promises. Not demands, promises. Not you must do this and if you keep your end up of the bargain, I'll, I'll do mine. It wasn't that. It was I will do these things. I promise, God said. I promise that you will be my people and I will love you. And marriage is meant to be a picture of that kind of love. And, and what all this means is that actually all of us have a stake in this, whether we are married or not, whatever our marital status, because we all need to understand this visual aid, not so that we can know more about marriage, but so we can know more about God's love, because that's what marriage is a picture of. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, human marriage will end. And it will be fulfilled in perfect, intimate union with Christ. And that union with him starts now when anybody, married or single, puts their trust in him. That is the goal of our lives. The goal of our lives is not human marriage, is it? The goal of our lives is that eternal relationship with God through Christ in eternity. So then down in verses 11 and 12, Jesus talks about those who are not married. Now, I think the word eunuch, there's a lot of unfortunate overtones today, but the, the point, especially at the end of, of the verse, is that, that there will be some who choose to remain single because of the advantages it brings in serving in the kingdom of God. In other words, it is perfectly possible to be single and to flourish as a human being. That is what Jesus is saying. It's not saying that everyone who is single is meant to remain single. And I know some would say that they're not voluntarily single. But what this shows us is that God's plan for both marriage and singleness is intended to promote human flourishing. He did it like this for a reason. It's there in his original design for creation. Now, our world, our culture, can, even we as individuals, I think, can get pretty cynical sometimes about both marriage and singleness. So I remember visiting a, a non-Christian family to take the funeral of an elderly man who'd been married for over 50 years. And I think his brother remarked, you don't get that for armed robbery. You know, what do you say to that in a pastoral funeral visit? But our, our culture devalues marriage, doesn't it? It says, what a bind it is. Um, but actually, Christians, if you think about it, Christians can go the other way. Christians can end up idolising it instead. So the story that gets told is simply the reward for premarital sexual virtue is great marital sex. And can you see that that, that kind of story actually is just perpetuating the worldly idea that sex is everything and singleness is loneliness. And we're conspiring with that when we make out marriage to be the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. Can you see that? It's the kind of story that we tell each other. 
You know, and we, and we want, you know, it's right as Christians that we want to, to protect marriage and to say what a good thing it is in the face of so much undermining of it in our culture. And yet if we're not careful, we end up just going along with that, that unhelpful view that, that says that actually, you know, that says that sex is the, the best thing possible um, and everything else is loneliness, is not matching up to it. Life actually is finally about knowing God. And both marriage and singleness have their ways of pointing to that and to the way that we will spend eternity. So how are we doing as a a church family at creating a community in which people of any marital status can find real relationship and friendship? Maybe you'll have thoughts on that. You can we can talk about them, but fa- families in, in general are full of lots of different types of people, aren't they? Families are full of married people, single people, divorced people, widowed people. Well, let, let's make sure that we express that in the way that we relate to each other. You know, it's easy to hang out with people like us, isn't it? It's always easier to do that. But what does it mean to be a genuine family as God's people? So that is God's plan. That is God's intention for human flourishing in both marriage and singleness. But there's a problem, you see, because life is messy and the unexpected and the unintended happens. And that uh, takes us to the second thing that we need to see here, which is marriage and singleness are spoilt by human sin. Spoilt by human sin. This is where we need to hear and understand those words of Jesus back in Uh, chapter 5, if you turn back to that on page 969. Remember, we saw last time, if you were here, that one of the ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law is by returning it to its original intention. It was always intended to be written on people's hearts, but the Pharisees had deflated it. They'd reduced it to a series of achievable with a bit of effort tick box commands. And like a a tyre that's gone flat, Jesus restores the law to its original intention by re-inflating it and showing how the commands, the commandments, are not just about action, but they're about heart. And in these verses, he raises three issues that spoil both marriage and singleness in different ways. Adultery, Lust and what you might call illegitimate divorce. We'll look at each of those in turn. Adultery, lust and, and illegitimate divorce. We, we, we don't need Ashley Madison to be reminded that adultery ruins marriages. Now some will know the pain of that firsthand, but Jesus wants to go further than that actually, doesn't he? Chapter 5 verse 28. And he, he wants to talk about how adultery starts in the heart with lust. Interestingly, what Jesus says about lust is actually right there in the Ten Commandments already, isn't it? Do you know where it is? It's in the, in the last commandment. Do not covet. And Moses said it explicitly. He said, do not covet your neighbor's wife. And we can extend that to your neighbor's husband. See, one form of coveting is undoubtedly lust. There is a a deep connection between the mind and heart on the one hand and the body on the other hand. So C.S. Lewis wrote about this slightly humorously when he talked about the experience of having mumps as an adult. I hope nobody here has had mumps 
as an adult, but, but for him, even the sight of food would stimulate the saliva glands, which in turn caused horrendous pain. And so, um, in a parody of the King James Version of this verse, he said, He that but looketh on a plate of ham and eggs to lust after it, hath already committed breakfast with it in his heart. <laughs> Do you see his points? He say, one thing leads to another. That's what we say about relationships, isn't it? And that's exa- exactly how it is. Your mind and your heart are set upon the ham and eggs and your body is already responding. And that is the same with lust. In the end, our bodies are programmed to follow our minds and our hearts. See, people don't generally wake up one day and decide to have an affair or fall into an inappropriate relationship. They fall into it slowly and it starts with the lingering look, the imagining of what might be, the discontentment with life as it is, and one thing leads to another. Proverbs chapter 4.23 says, Above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. It's easy to say, you know, well, I've, I've not committed adultery, and you may even be able to say, I've not looked at porn. But the question is, what is going on in the heart that no one can see, no internet history can reveal? No one can see except the God who made us. But come on, what's wrong with a bit of secret lust, someone might say? It doesn't harm anybody, does it? Nobody knows. Well, one of the problems with lust is that it creates discontentment. So if, you're, if you are lusting after someone to whom you're not married, whether you're married or single, you are creating discontentment with your situation. And discontentment is dangerous. We looked at this when we looked at Proverbs last term, Proverbs chapter 5, where Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern, rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, be, be content with your circumstances as they are. See, every Christian needs to wake each day and ask, what does it mean to live for God today? What does it mean to, for him to be number one in my life right here, right now, today? And then to get on and do that. But discontentment is the enemy of that because it makes us wallow in what might have been. Or it makes us wallow in what might be one day, but what is not actually today. We don't want to be the people who, who wake up after 20 years or however long it is and realise how much time we've wasted either in marriage or in singleness, wishing things were different rather than getting on with serving God in our circumstances today. What a waste of God-given time. What a waste of God-given opportunity. That's why Jesus tells his followers to be so ruthless with this kind of sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now what does Jesus mean? He's not making particular points about how the right eye might sin versus the left eye, or the right hand in particular over other parts of the body. The point is, 
any loss is preferable to the total loss of hell. So if pornography is a struggle as it is for so many in our world today, don't wait, take action now. See, lust is a path that ends in disaster and pornography is a particularly addictive expression of that. It's not a battle we're likely to win by ourselves. But there is help available if we will ask for it. And I'm happy to talk and give some pointers on that confidentially if you want to talk about it. As we think about lust, sometimes people struggle with what Jesus might mean when it comes to you know, working out whether you should marry somebody. If you are single, and you're, you know, how, do you, how do you work out, you know, are you, can you be attracted to someone, is that lust? I think one of the issues is that the world says there's only one type of lust, because the world wants to say lust is okay, it doesn't matter. Which I think the Bible would distinguish between the kind of lust that is discontented, allowing your, your mind and your heart and your body to run away with itself, and uh, a kind of godly seeking of God's will in a particular circumstance with a particular person. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7, you may know, if you, if you burn with passion with somebody in particular and there's nothing stopping you from getting married, it's a good thing to get married. It's not, you know, it's not as if you have to sort of um, say no to that. But I think we, we don't need to be like the world in this. We can distinguish between a godly attraction and a godless lust. And maybe it would be helpful to talk that kind of thing through um, with, with others to think about what that might look like. So that's adultery, that's lust. And then the, the third thing that spoils God's vision for marriage is what you might call illegitimate divorce. Not actually all divorce, if you look carefully at Jesus' words. Of course, divorce is always traumatic and horrible for everybody involved, but uh, Jesus isn't condemning all divorce in itself, in his words. He is, however, again, correcting the deflated view of the law from Deuteronomy 24. Um, so I won't get into all the details of that, but the basic point is Moses appears to permit the fact that divorce happens, but he doesn't actually command it. Whereas the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are hearing it as a command and Jesus says, no, he's just recognising the fact that sin happens, that life is messy. And so sometimes, sadly, divorce happens. And so in those circumstances, here, here's what you can do. But what Jesus says here in response to that would have been deeply challenging. Because in that time, there were basically two schools of thought about acceptable grounds for divorce. One said you can have divorce for any reason at all. So a rabbi called Rabbi Hillel taught that if you burn the dinner... That's enough. You can, you know, that's, you can have out after that. Um, actually, that sounds ridiculous, but it's not all that different from our contemporary divorce on the grounds of unreasonable behaviour. Where it seems in practice that the courts say that as long as one party finds something unreasonable, if they experience it as unreasonable, then that's basically enough. So you can, you can say almost anything you like um, and uh, it will be accepted. The other school, led by Rabbi Shammai, said, actually, no, only a serious transgression should be grounds for divorce. But Jesus actually goes further than either of them by saying here that marital unfaithfulness is the only valid grounds for divorce. 
The Apostle Paul uh, builds on this teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, he includes desertion by an unbelieving spouse as valid grounds. And on that basis, many argue, and I would agree, that abuse, whether physical or emotional, is a form of desertion. It's a way in which you can desert your spouse, and therefore is uh, sort of valid grounds for divorce. Now, now, why would that be? Why would those particular things mean that divorce is okay, but, but, but not in other ways? Well, if marriage is intended to be lifelong, reflecting God's undying love for his people, um, that's because that shows us that God's love is, is like a covenant. It is a covenant. That's the way that it's described in the Bible. God's love is a solemn agreement between him and his people that is not intended to be broken, but in certain, certain circumstances can be broken. And the main way it is broken is through unbelief, through faithlessness, ceasing to trust God and to believe his promises, worshipping other gods, falling away, we sometimes call it. Just as almost all of Israel did in the Old Testament, just as the book of Hebrews warns Christians about in the New Testament. And the point is that in marriage, adultery and desertion, including abuse, corresponds to that kind of covenant breaking. Now, there are a couple of really helpful analogies that are sometimes used to help sort of understand this. So, I'll give you three pictures. Which of these three pictures best corresponds to a marriage? Is it most like buying a car, baking a cake, or building a house? When you buy a car, you have it for a few years while it suits you. It might break down a few times. You try and fix it. But after a few years, everybody knows you don't keep a car forever. The time will come to trade it in for a newer model. See, that is the buy-a-car view of marriage. But really, it makes a mockery of the lifelong intention of marriage. What about uh, baking a cake? When you bake a cake, you start with raw ingredients and you mix them together and you bake them in such a way that you create a new thing that can never be undone. So when you bake a cake, can you get the eggs back again afterwards? Well, no, you can't. They've, they've gone. They're irretrievable. There's nothing you can do. And actually, that is one view of marriage held by some Bible-believing Christians. Maybe that is your view. Um, sometimes people connect it with the idea of it being a sacrament, although it doesn't have to be called that, but that might be the same kind of thinking. The implication would be, whether or not separation occurs, once married, the only thing that ends a marriage, and for example allows for remarriage, is death. And that historically was the position of the Church of England on this, until relatively recently. And although that is a highly... Uh, respectable view among Christians. Um, to my mind, it doesn't seem to do justice to these exceptions that both Jesus and Paul taught. The better analogy, I think, is building a house. A house is intended to be permanent. It's intended to be lifelong, as it were, to stand the test of time. But tragically, it doesn't always happen. It is possible, though not desirable, to break it up again into its component materials. Possible, though undeniably painful and messy, and only as a very last resort. 
And I think that is a more helpful way of understanding what a marriage is. Now, some people, as we, as we think about the implications of this, some people find these words of Jesus here about making the divorced person an adulteress hard to, to hear. Um, actually, Jesus puts it both ways around in Mark chapter 10. So the, the woman who divorces her husband without reason makes him an adulterer. Uh, so it's not a kind of sexist thing to put it this way around. But it's still hard to hear, isn't it? This, this seems to be about remarriage after divorce and whether such remarriage is technically adultery. Now, I personally, as a minister in the Church of England, have, in certain circumstances, remarried people after divorce. But I believe Jesus is saying here uh, that he isn't right in every instance. And it's not something you can apply a blanket policy to. You have to consider the circumstances of each situation. Uh, Always, though, with the gospel in mind. Always with God's redeeming, forgiving love in Christ. So sin spoils God's plans for human relationships. And so thirdly and finally, we need to hear, therefore, how marriage and singleness and human relationships are redeemed by God's love. Redeemed by God's love. Remember how the the chapter began? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, which includes mourning our sin. Blessed are the meek, the humble. See, the kingdom of God is not for all those who've got this sussed. Who can say they can live up to these perfect standards? I can't. I don't think you can either. But that is why Jesus came. Wouldn't it be glorious to live in a kingdom which wasn't spoilt by the ugliness of lust and the emptiness of adultery and the tragedy of divorce? Don't you want to be part of that world? That is what is on offer, but not to those who've got everything sorted, but rather to those who realise how much they need rescue. See, only Jesus can give us forgiveness for past sin and error. Only Jesus can free us from lust. Only Jesus can give us a vision for faithfulness and contentment, whatever our circumstances. So the American preacher Matt Chandler tells a story about how he once went to a Christian talk about sex and relationships for young people, and he took along a friend who happened to be a single mum. And this uh, friend wasn't a Christian, and had been through some very challenging times, some of which were her own making in some ways, and and some of which weren't at all. And the speaker stood up, and what he did was he handed out a rose, a single rose at the beginning of the talk, and he told the people listening to hand it round during the talk. And then the speaker did the talk, and at the end of the talk, he said, right, now who's got the rose? And And they brought it up, and there it was, broken torn, ugly, compared to how it had started. And of course, the speaker's point, his great crescendo as he reached the end of this talk was, well, if you sleep around and if you ignore God's way for sex and relationships, you will end up like this rose. And who would want a rose like this? 
And Matt Chandler describes how inside he was dying because everything inside him was crying out, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. He wants that broken, spoilt, bruised rose. That is the gospel, isn't it? See, all of us, in in different ways, are that broken, bruised rose. And these things that we've been exploring this evening, adultery, lust, illegitimate divorce, they're very serious, but they're not the unforgivable sin. Jesus holds out a fresh start to anyone who will trust in him. And it's only that kind of love that will free us from our tolerance of lust, for example, because we've something, we've someone better to look at. When our minds are struggling with lust or with discontentment, what we need, what we're really looking for, is what Jesus offers in the gospel. Real, unconditional, truly intimate, eternal love. No human relationship can offer that or match that. That is where we need to look. That is the better vision that we need to be captured by. Whatever the circumstances of our lives, whether we're finding marriage or singleness to be happy or challenging or a mixture of both, whatever those circumstances, we will find the resources to serve God faithfully today in the circumstances he has given us. Uh, We will find the resources to serve him in those circumstances in Jesus in the gospel. And we will find the resources to serve him through difficult, tough times. Maybe when we feel like we have been sinned against. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, Jesus says that there may be grounds for divorce, but again, that's not the same as a commandment to divorce. Even in the face of, of great, um, or, 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 or in the face of adultery, in the face of broken promises. There is always the option to reconcile, to act out the undying love of God that he has shown to us. I think what Jesus is saying is recognising that, humanly speaking, that won't always be possible. But when we forgive, when we act in the face of repentance and and. Uh, respond to that with forgiving love. That is acting out the gospel. That is acting towards others in the way that God has acted to us. If you're not yet trusting in in Jesus for yourself, let, let me say Jesus is calling us to something deeply countercultural. That much is obvious, isn't it? A, a completely different way of looking at sex and relationships and other issues from the way much of our world takes for granted. And I hope you can get a sense from what we've looked at this evening that this isn't ultimately about petty rules. Actually, it's about who gets to say what is best for human beings. Do we get to make it up as we go along? Or would we be better off listening to the God who made us? And then if we go with listening to the God who made us, we also need to hear loud and clear, this God is a God of grace, of rescue, of love, of freedom from what binds us, of joy and peace through Jesus who in obedience to his loving Father stepped into the middle of the mess in the world and suffered its consequences 
took the judgment we deserve from God, who is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. He took that punishment on his shoulders so we can enjoy perfect, intimate union with him forever. That is the kingdom every human being is invited into through trusting in Jesus. So wherever we stand with Jesus today, whatever our our life circumstances we find ourselves in, will we accept that invitation? Will we choose to go his way? Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we acknowledge that before you we are like that rose, broken, bruised by our own sin and weakness and failure, by the sin of others around us, by the world around us. And we praise you that your response to that in your love was not uh, just to come in judgment as we deserve, but to come to save, to rescue, to give us a fresh start. And we pray that our human relationships would be marked by that same kind of self-giving love that you have shown to us. Whatever our circumstances, particularly our marital circumstances, we pray that we would be able to show that love, to model it. Where there are things that we need to repent of, things that we need help with, things that we need to put right, we pray that you'd help us to take those steps to do that. Where we need comfort and encouragement, Pray that we would daily find that in Jesus, in the gospel, in your word, in the counsel of one another as we share one another's burdens. Father, we pray that you would continue to make us a family where we are able to model this love to one another in all the different circumstances we find ourselves. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.